Priors. I am your host, Dr. Alice Evans, and I am joined by the great, the brilliant, Daron Ajimolu. Welcome! Hi, Alice. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm great. Okay, so today we're going to discuss everything that you got wrong. Many things, yes. <laughs> and I have five suggestions. Number one, at low levels of development, is democracy really good for growth? Two, have you changed your mind on religion? Three, on automation, do you think that culture shapes institutions? Four, are wages socially determined? And five, with climate breakdown, have you become more of a geographical determinist? And the reason I wanted to do this podcast with you is I think that, you know, you've published on so many different things and you're constantly learning and maybe revising your priors on a few things. And I think that's great. I think that's something to embrace, that we can be wrong in the past. So you're the best person in the world who I could ask these questions to. So well, thank that's a, you. That's a great explanation for your reason. I'm wondering what my reason was for agreeing. <laughs> but anyway, all right. Okay. So I want to start with India. So in Why Nations Fail and also The Narrow Corridor, they blamed India's labor market rigidities and its inefficiencies on caste. So my question to you is, why does caste remain so important in India? If only I knew. So I don't think you can accuse me of being wrong on that no, one, no, because no, no, no. I don't think I have ever had a good theory okay, for that. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I think caste is so deeply rooted. You know, uh, we delve a little bit into the history of, uh, you know, the beginnings of caste conceptions in India to communicate how deeply rooted it is and for something that has become so much the fabric of life you know the way in which people define themselves allocate their labor in the uh, in the job market you know form their love relations their bonds you know it's very difficult to erase it and on the one hand i don't find it surprising that it has persisted on the other hand it's an amazing set of lenses for understanding things like norms or what Jim and I call the cage of norms in the narrow corridor because, you know, the Indian constitution is very much targeted at, you know, eradicating caste hierarchies. And I would say, actually, it is both a sad and uplifting story because it's sad in the sense that despite the fact that that's what Ambedkar and and uh, the Indian constitution really aimed at, caste relations are still everywhere. But on the other hand, it's uplifting because the caste hierarchies are weaker today in India than they were. There are many more opportunities for low caste people. Uh, but it's also true that both in India and abroad, people are, re are trying to reestablish caste hierarchies, which I don't find surprising. But it shows, you know, actually institutional change can work despite these... Uh, very heavy norms. But if you really want to understand the exact pathways in which caste relations work, how they have reproduced themselves, I think you really need to be an expert on Indian society, which I'm not. I want to suggest some hypotheses. I would love and to hear them. And then I want yeah. you to tell me where you think I might get wrong. So 
I would suggest that jati endogamy remains important because so many people are in very precarious livelihoods. And because of that endemic insecurity, you know, 70% of people are on tiny farms, less than one hectare. 77% of people work in little enterprises, you know, cousins together, smaller than 10 employees. And that precarity compounds dependence on kin because you can count on kin to support you. And so in order to maintain that, so, that social security, people marry endogamously. So now, my next question, if you buy that hypothesis that precarity breeds dependence on caste, and indeed, in India's thriving cities, we actually see less caste residential segregation, that when you have more economic security, you can live wherever you want because you have a salary job. So the question, I think, is why has India's growth not generated so many formal jobs? If you want, you can try to answer that, or I have a solution I made up. Go for it, and then I'll I'll comment on all of them. Yes, yes. (laughs) It's easy for me, okay. (laughs) We're going to discuss Alice's mistakes, not mine. Okay, no, but it's important. Wait, I, I have a long-term plan here. Right. So I would suggest that the, there are twofold problems. One is the deep roots of caste. Secondly, India's labor regulation and also a vicious cycle. So 70% of India's land holdings are less than one hectare. And that's partly because there is a maximum land holding to break up the Zamindar system. But that, of course, traps people in agriculture. It prohibits sales to successful commercial farmers. And so people can't get out of agriculture. They can't also make money when they are productive. On top of this, in cities, so many people uh, have disincentives to expand their firms because once a firm has over 10 workers, then you have to allow trade unions, then you have to allow, there are all these labor regulations and inspections, and they find, and there's a new paper showing that when a firm hires more than nine workers, the additional cost per worker goes up by 35% as a result of extortionary corruption. So what I would suggest is that firms purposefully stay small to circumvent those costly labor laws. And so that protective labor legislation may actually be suppressing job creation in the formal economy, motivating businesses to subcontract to home-based workers, which compounds uh, precarity and dependence on care. That may then create a vicious cycle. Um, Amit Basuli has a nice paper showing that if everyone, if the vast majority of workers are precariously employed, they don't have the money to demand the goods and services in the modern economy, which only caters to a narrow elite who just want capital-intensive goods. So as everyone only wants, no one has much money, no one is generating those jobs. So what I would suggest is that India's labor aristocracy hijacked its democratic institutions, creating labor laws that protected their interests. So now I come to my question about what Atamoglu got wrong. Do you see where I'm going? So at low levels of development, can democracy be hijacked by, say, a labor aristocracy, which ultimately thwarts long-term development? Is democracy always good for growth or might it vary? For example, where in East Asia, you know, South Korea and Taiwan, they democratize when they were at a higher level of development. So that is my, that was my convoluted okay. way. You All see? right. Well, okay. So do you want me to comment on the chain of reasoning that... You take it wherever you like, but all I'm giving you as an example is that democracy okay. might not be good for growth at low levels of development. And that's just an example. Okay. Take whatever you like. Well, so I, 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 I think... Your hypothesis is very interesting. I'm not sure whether it's the full story, uh, and I would love to see more evidence for it. You know, I think what it misses, in my opinion, is that there is probably more political channels by which this is happening. So you're putting the emphasis on economics. So the, you know, the caste aristocracy 
uses the economic allocations as a way of solidifying its control, but there are more direct ways. So if you if you look at the interviews that you know Dalits give, it's all about many social dimensions of repression that they feel. Uh, like for example, you know, uh, Human Rights Watch has this wonderful report on. Uh, manual scavengers, and they all say, we hate this job, we don't want to do it, it's not worth, it's not the money, but we feel socially forced to do it, because all of the pressure from both formal and informal institutions is pushing us towards doing it. So I think there is that aspect of it, which is very important, and I think the reason why I'm saying that is because if it was just a pure economic story, you would see much more endogamy within the low caste, but not among the Brahmins. So I'm totally with you that there is this, there are the, there's this culture is hugely important and those are the deep roots. But my question is why? So we should expect caste to persist in India. But my question is, why hasn't growth reduced caste no. to a greater and, and, and degree? I think, and I think that's um, so absolutely that's right. My- You're right that... The main channel via which growth would reduce it is by providing good jobs for people, which then acts as a social, political, and economic empowerment mechanism. And you are right, there are many parts of that story. Some of it goes through regulation, some of it is through other means. I don't think I completely agree that uh, labor regulation is sometimes very stifling in India, and I'm sure that's part of it, but I'm not sure whether that's the full channel. But let's bring it to democracy. Yes. So... If the story is democracy is creating specific distortions, of course, Mm. 100%, Mm. that these distortions could be very costly, 100%, that these distortions are going to take different forms in different countries, 100%. But then there are two other inferences that you are making none of which I'm entirely sure about. One is that these distortions are more severe in less economically developed countries. I'm not sure what the comparison is. Mm. So if the comparison is some to some abstract first best allocation, perhaps, but I think the right comparison has to be to what other methods the elites would have used in the absence of democracy. And compared to that benchmark, I don't know that democratic distortions are worse in less developed economies. And then the second inference based on the first Mm -hmm. is that as a result, you are thinking perhaps in low levels of development, democracy is bad for economic growth. Mm. On that one, First of all, let me say, yes, I'm sure there are some societies in which democracy has been bad for economic growth, but that's not what we're talking about on average. Yes. And on average, I'm not entirely sure because the alternative would have been very bad. So imagine that India was an oligarchy that was formally rectified. You know, the control of the upper caste people would have been even more stifling. And I'm not sure that they would have worked in a sort of an efficient uh, sort of stationary bandit way of extracting resources in the most efficient way, I think they would have created a lot of distortions. So uh, I'm not entirely sure, but if I'm not sure, does that mean that you may be right, I may be wrong? Yeah, perhaps. But let me give you one set of examples where, uh, which will also be useful for broadening 
our way of thinking about democracy. So you see, I'm not admitting my mistakes here. <laughs> uh, so you have to try your luck with the other four questions. Uh, so first of all, I think I have come to believe that we have too narrow a conception of democracy. So we identify in the West democracy with elections and competitive party systems that try to appeal for mass votes. I think that is absolutely an essential part of any democratic system in a modern industrialized nation. But when you look at, say, pre-industrial or quasi-industrial societies like those in Africa, I think the more important democratic channels work through tribal institutions, participation into assemblies. And, you know, my reading of the evidence there, for example, the paper that I wrote with Tristan Reed and James Robinson in Sierra Leone is that, you know, democratic forces there are actually quite important. You know, chiefs that don't face any competition are much more extractive, much worse for economic development. So, again, if you have that broad conception of democracy, I'm not entirely sure that democracy is actually bad for economic growth. In fact, it would be very important for economic growth at early stages of development. But I will admit the following, which I think I've never claimed, but perhaps we were not sufficiently careful in clarifying it. If you have a society that has big deficit in terms of state capacity, deep-rooted animosities between different ethnicities, different religions, or different groups, and you plunk Western-style democratic institutions on them without the bottom-up mobilization, that could perhaps backfire. But I don't think that I would admit that, for example, U.S.-imposed democracy or whatever, I'm not even going to call it democracy, in Iraq has backfired. Therefore, we should revise our view about whether democracy is good for economic growth. No, I don't think I'm going to accept that. Okay, I want to give you two examples. So, uh, Pavithra Suryanarayan at the LSE has two fascinating examples, one from India, one from the American South in Reconstruction. And she finds that when the lower class were given greater entitlements, what did the Brahmin elite do? they destroyed the state from within. They purposefully chose mm -hmm. to weaken fiscal capacity. And the same was true in the American South with mm -hmm. Reconstruction. That when you think the uh, marginalized groups have better rights and entitlements, yes. there's a backlash. Right. You try to destroy the state right. from within. Right. So I would just give but that again, as an but example. Again, that uh, might uh, not have happened in an authoritarian... She doesn't draw this conclusion, yes. I should say. But in an authoritarian environment, there wouldn't have been that incentive to destroy the state from within. They were trying to weaken public goods, yes. right? Absolutely. But, you know, again, take the U.S. South, for instance. Mm. You know, reconstruction is clear, is, 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 is a very explicit example of strengthening of democracy. Black Americans participate in great numbers in all kinds of democratic activities, including local uh, 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 local Congress, you know, uh, uh, state-level Congress, uh, uh, more local politics, even uh, the federal uh, institutions. And things actually start going quite well. There's a uh, period of, uh, you know, black flourishment in terms of education, businesses, and so on and so forth. But I would say uh, the redemption 
period is actually a reversing of that democratic right. So I don't see that as an organic consequence of democratization. Yes. If we had done democratization the right way. Right, it's contingent. Which exactly. Is, uh, okay, so that's... Uh, uh, so, for instance, if, if democratization was accompanied with more economic means, for example, you know, of uh, uh, 40 acres and a mule. Yes, yes. Uh, or, you know, blacks were actually started being marginalized even before redemption, if that hadn't happened so that they had local political power, you know, I think redemption would not have worked and we would we were not condemned to Jim Crow South, for instance. So, so I think that actually I would spin them around and say that's an example where democracy was taken away and that's why things didn't work out. What's about what's about the India example whereby I don't the know enough. Okay, right, I don't okay, know okay. enough we'll we'll But but I, I completely agree the following. I mean this yes. is actually I teach this in all Tell of my political economy courses. You know, things can get very inefficient when an elite group feels weakened mm -hmm. and tries to use every instrument in order to regain power. Yeah. That is a very, very distortionary process. But again I'm not sure that I want to accept that that's an organic consequence of democracy. Sometimes it can be associated with democracy, but because we're not setting up democratic institutions right or other norms are not facilitating the nullification of those powers so of the elite. There's a paper in APSR by Chris Klassen, and he finds that when minorities gain civil and political rights, the average support for democracy goes down. But anyway, so that again would point to a backlash to me. Anyway, but we can move on. We can move on. And maybe you don't concede that you got that wrong. I got right? I got I don't concede. <laughs> All right. So here is my next question. Right. I think this is, okay. Now, I want to quote mm -hmm. from a brilliant book, Why Nations Fail. Why Nations Fail states, religion is just not important for understanding how we got here or why inequalities in the world persist. Would you tweak that in any way? Uh, yeah, I would tweak that a little bit. So, <clears throat> uh, here is how I would put it. So, actually, you could probably find other quotes from Why Nations Fair. I don't remember what we wrote, but I'm sure we said culture doesn't matter. And I think what our target was, and we were not sufficiently careful, and, of course, we hadn't thought about the full, the full details, but our, our target was monolithic theories of national cultures and religions that condemn you to poverty. And I am completely convinced that's still the case. So there is no reason for why any national culture is rigid enough to bring a definite set of economic policies or economic outcomes. So what I have worked on a lot over the last several years, mm. uh, like three, four years with Jim, is Jim Robinson, uh, is thinking about how we should think of cultural equilibria more generally. And what my and Jim's reading of the evidence and the conceptual structure is that religions, for example, or other cultural aspects are extremely fluid they allow very different types of reinterpretation. And that's very much in line with the ideas that we had in Why Nations Fail, and that's why I didn't think religion was important. But there is one other thing which goes in your direction, and therefore you could count that as a error to be corrected. Don't uh, see it as a bad thing. I right. think I, No, no, at first, I know, no, I, absolutely, absolutely. I'm, 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 I'm open to it. I can, I can tell you, 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 there are many other mistakes I've made you, you're not even aware <laughs> of. Uh, but, but the way that just the chain of reasoning in my yes. mind is that once you start thinking of 
this fluidity of culture that you reinterpret symbols, you mm -hmm. interpret meanings, you interpret what it means to follow the Bible, for example, then an important element is going to be what is the degree of fluidity that mm -hmm. a cultural set or toolkit, like Anne Swidler calls it, or what we call culture set, what is the fluidity it allows? And I think some cultures are going to be uh, because of the way that they have developed, because of the synthesis that they have brought in, <clears throat> they're going to uh, be more restricting in reformulating those meanings. And I think that's the way in which today I believe that different cultures or different religions are going to matter. But I would still say the bigger element there is politics. So, sure, if you look at the data and you say, you know, how can you think that religion doesn't matter when it comes to women's rights, uh, when there is such huge gaps between Islam and, say, uh, Buddhism or Christianity yes. or Judaism? Sure, I think we have to entertain that hypothesis. We have to look into it. But I don't think we can understand it without politics. So how religion has been used politically in different places, but that's where the elements of religion matter because some of them really lend themselves to being used in one way and they don't have the fluidity, for example, for opposition groups to reformulate different visions of it. But again, it's a very deeply political thing. So in that sense, I would say, yes, our categorical statement is wrong in uh, why nations fail, but I think the emphasis on politics is still probably on target. May I reply? Sure. So I knew you'd say this. You'd say, well, <laughs> <So predictable. laughs> you are. <laughs> so you'd say, you know, religious authoritarianism mm -hmm. entrenches these patriarchal institutions because it prohibits uh, flourishing social democracy. It, fl it, in it inhibits critique, mm -hmm. right? However, let's look at immigrants. Mm -hmm. What happens when people migrate from patriarchal countries to the UK or the USA? Let me give two examples, mm -hmm. one from the labor market and mm -hmm. one from male violence against women. Muslim women in Britain are systematically less likely to work. And that's even controlling for human capital. And interestingly, in the UK, 74% of British women work. 69% of Hindu women work. 39% of Bangladeshi and Pakistani women work. So the gap is huge, even with very similar economic opportunities. So that, to me, you know, that's not about institutions because it's just culture, it's just socialization. Okay, so, so Alice, you've just run a famous regression in economics. Uh, there are several papers that do that. Uh, I think the best well-known, the, 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 the most well-known and the best one is by Raquel Fernandez and Alejandra, Alessandra Fogli which is to say, okay, we brought, bring immigrants into a country like, like the U.S., same institution, but female labor force participation or fertility persists just like their mother's generation. Yes. That's a very interesting finding. It's very important, and it's an important paper, and your observation is important. But I am not completely comfortable interpreting that as pure culture. Okay. Let's think about what are the forces that women who come into a country from, uh, say, into the U.S. Yeah. from a Muslim country are subject to. First of all, they are under the constant pressure of a community. They don't go and live in the middle of, you know, 
Scandinavians or right. Norwegians or, or, or Americans. They, they live in an enclave, and in that enclave, they're constantly being policed yes. by... But that is culture. Well, no, I would is, see that as culture. That's well, a community not. policing is. A well, I, I think it's, it's a it's it's a set of incentives. If they want to survive, if they want yep. to be able to get married, if they want and don't want to get beaten up, I don't know whether yeah. that's culture or not. It's you know, like the interpretation that, for example, Fernandez and Fogli have, and I think a lot of people mm. have of the culture mm. is you know your parents instill these values in uh-huh. you. Okay, I see the So it's not that. It's really institutional and here is one example of making this institutional mm. much clearer if you had a state that did not allow your cousins policing your you know behavior that would be a very different outcome for these women and look at muslim women who come from somewhat more socially advantageous background and they go and study in New York or Chicago do you see the same dynamics you don't if it was really culture wouldn't you okay so let me have two replies okay. please so number one, you're precisely right. In fact, there's a fascinating paper by Heron Gorin, and what they find is that if a woman migrates by herself, mm-hmm. even coming from a conservative country, she's more likely to work than one who comes with her family or with her husband or with her community. So the difference between lead, lead unmarried migrants. So I don't know this right. paper. That sounds yeah. fascinating. I'll get the reference from I, you later. I will give you a list of readings. So absolutely, community makes a difference. If a woman comes by herself, and she's obviously more likely to be, you know, the sort of entrepreneurial, single-minded, independent person coming by herself, she's much more likely to work than someone from the same community who comes with their kin. But I would interpret the community effects that you speak of, the social policing, as a form of culture. So in my work, for example, and I don't want to make this about me, but I would distinguish between someone's internalized ideologies, what they think is right or wrong, and their norm perceptions, their expectations about how they will be treated, uh, Mm. condemned or chastised in their community. And I would see that all as culture. And so you see that cultural effect in these communities. And you're totally right in your other point that a Muslim woman from India is more likely to work in the UK than a Muslim woman in Pakistan. And so again, that to me is pointing to a cultural effect that the community policing is slightly mm-hmm. different. Anyway. Good. Good. Okay, okay. So Sorry, but I think you know so it's very you've important. Con- you've, con- you've converted to me, right? right? So you're, you're right. You, uh, you we, we agree, we agree. Good good <laughs> minds think say- alike. But but let me make one yes, more plea. Yes, yes. I think calling things like norms mm. and community policing culture may not be the right terminology okay. because in the minds of many people culture is this unchanging very rigid thing and community policing is precisely a very flexible thing we can change that very easily and you know when you know uh, other people who are not working in this field or you know non-economists or non-social scientists read this culture stuff they mean something completely different and we have to be just careful on that. Okay, so what you're saying is that you accept religion matters, you accept culture matters, but you want people to interpret this as a much more flexible, malleable thing. Right. If you mean by culture matters is that the way that we form norms, we form meaning, of course. How could it? I mean, you know, if you have this all-encompassing definition of culture, then institutions could not matter without culture. Institutions cannot function without norms and expectations of how they're going to function and what we mean by a constitution, how other people are going to interpret these things. But I think that's that you know that's also some anthropologists have that definition of culture that it becomes all encompassing. I'm with you. I'm with you. I have another question on culture. Right. Go for it. So I want to tell you about this amazing new book on automation. They argue. They argue. Listen. 
that, and I want to quote, we will not build inclusive institutions unless we change our vision. So that is, if we, we're much more likely to properly regulate innovation and properly use automation, if we first build broad agreement about what kinds of regulatory institutions we want and what kinds of regulatory institutions are desirable. So in this brilliant new book, they argue that institutions are endogenous to culture. And that seems to me quite different from some of your earlier arguments where it's institutions are primary. But here it seems that culture is shaping institutions. So I wonder if that reflects a sort yeah. of transition in your... Th oh, I should say to the, to the listeners, I'm talking about Derone's next book. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, <laughs> these authors must be very wise. <laughs> I would say, uh, again, I want to be more precise okay. here. You know, what's missing from my work and other people's work in institutions, and I think we've all known this, and uh, is, you know, where do institutional innovations or ideas come from? You know, it's naive to think that there was a menu of institutions that's available to, this, to us today and was available to, you know, Sumerians, uh, you know, 6,000 years ago. So we innovate on the institutional front. And some of that innovation is about building new coalitions. Some of that innovation is about developing new rhetorics, uh, new narratives. Some of that is changing people's priorities. So I think what we need to do is have a deeper dive into an understanding of these things. And I think we are dancing around those issues in that passage. And what we mean by vision is really a central part of that. So let me try to expand on yes. that a little bit. So imagine, as we argue in the book, that today the U.S. and therefore the world economy suffers because a small group of tech companies are too powerful. How are you going to fix that? Well, you know, one way to fix that might be, okay, we're just going to be pure sort of materialist and we're going to try to change tax systems or market structures. And I think that can work. But how are you actually going to build effective changes in antitrust law or market incentives for developing new t technologies that are more worker-friendly? I think that's very difficult unless you build that around a new understanding of the public about what needs to be done, of the bureaucrats, what needs to be done, some understanding of people who go and work in the tech sector. That's what we're talking about, vision. So I'm not sure whether I would call that culture, but it's certainly it's at the level of ideas and reasoning about what we want, what we can achieve, what we can try to turn into common shared goals. So I see, so reflecting on your two answers, like I, so I think of culture quite broadly, it can be people's internalized beliefs, their desires, their expectations. You know, your expectations are what you think is socially achievable, right? What you think other people in your community will support. If you're a worker and you think no one will rise up and go and strike yeah. against Walmart, yeah. you, you subsist. So I guess so to me, there seems to be a bit of a tension because on the one hand, in the previous answer on religion, you were saying, well, culture persists because of these institutions. And mm -hmm. now you're saying that in order to change the institutions, we first need to redefine our ideas, culture, etc. So does that make us more pessimistic about the possibility of changing the institutions because the, institu the institutions, of course, drive the culture? I think they're both determining each other. Yes, yes, yes. So... Uh, 
you know, this goes back to again. I'm not. Sh I'm not claiming that I understand this fully, nor do I have a good sort of mathematical theory of this. But institutions are very much dependent on the aspirations around which they are built. Yes. So when I say institutions shape, for example, something like community policing, I'm not denying that there is this aspirational element to institutions. So it really depends on where you're breaking the chain in some sense. So when I'm talking about you know, what goes on in enclaves, I think the role of institutions is key because, you know, in in the UK, for instance, I think it is, of course, you can blame the communities, but I think you also have to blame the British state because it's allowing institutionally <coughs> a very distorted set of incentives to exist in those enclaves. Okay. <coughs> but, but when I come to the issue of national policy about tech, I want to also think about what are the aspirations, what are the understanding about where we can push technology. Those are the ideational things that yeah. I think are important. So I don't think there's any con conflict there. Okay. Okay. All right. Now let's move on to labor economics. Yeah. So question to you. Mm -hmm. In labor economics, do you now pay more attention to how wages are shaped by our sense of fairness? So there's this brilliant new paper. And they show that ideology matters because managers only share profits with their workers if they don't have a business degree. Whereas I think in some of your earlier work, you wouldn't have emphasized ideology so much. So it seems to me that in both development economics yes. and also in labor economics, you're now embracing norms more. And you may be previously... Why, I mean, why do you think you previously underestimated culture in both labor economics and more broadly? Well, you know, I think many of us come from a more materialist background, so there is an evolutionary process there. Second, it's also what's acceptable in economics. And third, what you can really model and empirically measure. So all of these things force you towards, you know, the materialist end. So, you know, my dissertation uh, had a significant element of imperfect labor markets where you bargain over uh, over surplus, uh, so issues of bargaining power were critical. So if you ask somebody who's not an economist, you know, bargaining is important, you know, the more powerful party is going to get a bigger share and that's going to have implications about how much unemployment there is and so on. And then say, well, do you think like ideas and norms matter here? And they will say, yes, of course, that's, those mm -hmm. are going to determine the bargaining power. But in economics, we don't have a way of determining that. And the sort of the default is then we take the bargaining power as a parameter and we focus on other things. So, so I just followed the economics thing. And, you know, if you ask me at that time, you know, does fairness matter? I don't know what answer I would have given. I mean, I, I think uh, I might have actually perhaps missed the importance of fairness kind of considerations. Uh, and I, I and so yeah, I think my, my, my thinking has evolved there. Like, I think another place is, you know, efficiency wages. So I uh, always teach efficiency wages whenever I can, because I think it's a really cool set of issues. And, and I always teach the Shapiro Stiglitz version, which is very s simple, very elegant, very materialistic, and very much in line with economic 
sort of fundamentals. Everybody is selfish. Workers are trying to shirk so that they don't put the effort and so on and so forth. And I remember this conversation I had with George Akerlof and 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 I even said, you know, but George, these two models are, you know, the fairness, you know, which is the one that he worked on and with Janet Yellen and and by himself. You know, these these models have very similar implications, you know, when you have gift exchange. Uh, so you pay higher wages to workers as a way of sharing gifts and they respond reciprocally. But he said they may have the, the same similar implications, but they're fundamentally different and the fairness one is right. And I think he was right. You know, I think, you know, those sorts of issues about what you think is the just way or fair way of splitting the surplus. I think those are very important. But do we have a good way of getting to it? I still don't think we have. So I wouldn't suggest that all young labor economists should immediately go to fairness models, because I think there's a lot more that we can learn by blackboxing that part and, and, and doing things. But yes, absolutely, I think we have to be open to these ideas. And I also sort of... Uh, argue both in that paper and in, uh, in, in in the book that you very nicely quoted that things like the Friedman Doctrine, you know, to an economics undergraduate or graduate student, it may seem just like obvious why it's isn't that just like saying firms maximize profit and uh, we should talk about net present value maximization. No, I think it's part of an ideology and it actually minimizes things like gift exchange and fairness and and being nice to your workers. So so I think it might actually, the way that it's packaged might have more far-reaching conclusions than we may at first understand. So I have a follow-up question then. So mm -hmm. you, you, said some, you said that there are three reasons why you might have previously underestimated or not engaged with the importance of norms. One, that that was just you know, the, the norm in economics, what is expected, and also that it's hard to model. What do you think are the best ways, like for people listening to this who are interested in questions of ideology and fairness, what do you think are the the cool, groovy ways to try to get into these questions? Like you said black boxing. Is that the yeah. best thing? No, no. I mean, I think like, you know, if you look at the work by Ernst Fair, for example, both experimentally and from uh, various different angles, I mean, I think that's very, very exciting. But there might be other, other ways of doing it. I mean, I, I find Ernst's uh, experimental work very convincing. Do I think that he has the right conceptual model? The jury's out there yet. So I think we have to think of different sort of ways of approaching that problem. Like it may be that fairness is something that's ingrained in us mm -hmm. by an evolutionary process. It may be that it's a side effect of something else, as a byproduct mm -hmm. of something else. Uh, like Steve J. Golds and Richard Lewontin's, uh, you know, spandrels, uh, or or it may be something that emerges as part of a social network, perhaps who you interact with, who you identify with. So I think we have to explore all these possibilities. Okay, I want to give you a. F I want to do something nice for you. Oh, thank you. I want to suggest something that you might have got right. Oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> On reflection, how confident are you that you got China right? Are you still, Are because, you, you know, you previously said, you know, I don't expect China mm -hmm. to do that well in the long run, and maybe people quizzed you now, but China, I mean, how do you feel about China now? How, how sure are you that you got it right, you called it right? I'm not sure. Oh, really? I'm not sure. So, you know, I mean, these are very, very difficult predictions. Mm. 
so here are the things that I think I am somewhat confident about. Okay. In history, we have no civilization that has been consistently innovative while being rigidly authoritarian. Mm -hmm. Second, Chinese growth for most of the period we're talking about, almost perhaps all of the period we're talking about, is not really about innovation. So those two things I am confident about. Okay. What is exceptional about China is that while other authoritarian countries did not, not, it's not just that they weren't innovative, they did not attempt that much to be innovative. Soviet Russia, a little bit in a few sectors because of its military importance, but it did not invest in broad-based innovation as an economic strategy. China has been doing that for almost 20 years now. So China is exceptional in thinking in the ideas Mm. of its leadership, that it can remain rigidly authoritarian while also becoming an innovation leader. So that's one exception. That's a unique case so far as I'm concerned. Yes. Second, China China today is Mm. in another unique position because until now we've never had any other period in human history where data matters so much. And data, I I argue also that we are exaggerating what we're getting out of data, we're exaggerating what we're getting out of AI, but it is undeniable that data is going to matter a lot. And the Chinese strategy is also monopolized data. So is that going to allow a way out for an authoritarian country to actually advance technologically? I think that's a question mark. I would still say no because I think, and I have some new research on this, uh, that authoritarian political structures also distort other incentives. So you get innovation, but you get very distorted innovation. But I think you know, we have to be modest. These two things are unique experiments in history. My prior is that they're not going to succeed, but we cannot be sure. Mm-hmm. Yes, this is something I remember we discussed before, that in a world of big data, property rights may not be so good for growth, yes. Which may be something someone got wrong. About, right. No, I wouldn't say that property rights are not good for growth. I would but say that... in the that world of big data, whereby the Chinese state... Or, no, sorry, I don't mean property rights. Let me correct myself. I mean privacy rights. Privacy rights. Yes. Again, privacy I'm not rights. sure. I'm not sure that that's right either. Okay. I'm just saying there's, there's okay, uncertainty right. there's there. I'm, I think, I think the question is in some sense... So I, I also... Another thing I have mm. gotten right. Mm. Originally, I actually thought that, you know, uh, marketizing data was not a very effective strategy of dealing with our current economy. I'm sort of now thinking perhaps, you know, along the lines of what computer scientist Jerome Lanier says, you know, cre- creating data markets, uh, data unions, data coalitions, etc. perhaps that, that, that might be more promising. So there, there are many questions. So what I think, what I was saying earlier is that Monopolizing data may give a way out right, for yes. the Chinese okay. Okay. authoritarian system. Okay, another question. Now, with climate breakdown, 
will you become more of a geographical determinist? Because, you know, climate, terrible climates, floods, tsunamis, uh, you know, it's, it's droughts create constraints to growth, create constraints. So no matter how good your institution is, it's going to be difficult to educate people at very high temperatures. Productivity goes down at high temperatures. Agriculture is thwarted at high temperatures. I have to be careful in answering this question because so the last thing I want is in any part of my answer hinting that the climate emergency we're living under is not serious. Okay. I think it is absolutely first order. It's the probably the most important challenge facing humanity right now. And I have argued we need to be all hands on deck, that all sorts of policy and norms and institutions have to be changed aggressively in order to deal with the climate challenge. Why? Because I think starting from our current situation, given our current way of life, the loss of economic output, loss of utility, loss of comfort, and loss of life would be humongous. Yeah, much of the world will be uninhabitable, yes. Parts of the world would be uninhabitable in the current form. Yes. So huge, huge costs. Do I believe that if we have two degrees Celsius increase relative to pre-industrial time, economic growth has come, come to an end? No. Humans are amazingly adaptable. They would adapt. It would be a very costly adaptation process but we would adapt. So in those places? like In much of the world. So, yeah, of course, in Dhaka and Venice, no, because some of these places will be underwater. Yes. But in many other parts that of the world, we would survive. So in Mediterranean, life would continue. Yes, in the Mediterranean, life would continue. But in parts of North India or in parts of Latin America, where yeah, it's going to be so hot that it would just be uninhabitable, that some. people either die or move. Yes. It doesn't matter what institutions you have. It doesn't matter because be the, the, the place, the people won't exist in that place some parts of the world will definitely turn into that exactly which ones and you know remember some of the most remarkable civilizations in history have been in hot climates so just the increase in the temperature by itself wouldn't mean that humans will not find ways of adapting. But obviously, given that today we live in a world that is much more connected, would mean that many people would migrate away from these areas. But if you do the thought experiment that take the Mediterranean basin and humans were forced to stay there and we have a two degrees Celsius increase in temperature, what would happen? My best guess is that there would be humongous costs in terms of life, comfort, etc. but humans then would learn how to adapt to it. And bringing it back to climate, you know, my claim was never that geography is completely irrelevant. Of course, geography determines where we live. But humans, again, just like a bit like culture, are so adaptable that they would find ways of living in a variety of different geographies, and they have found it in history. So, you know, parts of the tropics and the semi-tropics were some of the most economically vibrant places in the past. 
Mm. I mean, okay, let me just give you an example from my field mm-hmm. work in Cambodia. Mm-hmm. So I, I spent three months in a Cambodian village and the rains were late. Mm-hmm. So all these farmers, they went to Vietnam to buy fertilizer, insecticides. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They invested all that money. They sowed their crops. Mm-hmm. The rains did not come. The mice came and they ate up all the seeds. All that investment was just destroyed because of the pests. Then they were incredibly, incredibly indebted. So what do you do? So, so that, that money that they could have spent investing in their children's education, that money that they could have used to improve the houses, many of them, you know, go into sort of debt, mm-hmm. peonage type things. But, you know, they're, they're, those huge, that would, to me, create a huge constraint to growth. And that could in turn shape institutions because course, you're going absolutely. to be much more beholden to net, networks of patronage, etc. So, or you need to develop new institutions for better risk sharing. Mm. But, you know, again, look, go back in history. There were phenomenal civilizations in Cambodia. How did they do it? Climate wasn't that different. All right, all right, we can move on. Um, so I, 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 I would be more of a geographical determinist, but let's move on. Okay, so let me have two final questions, and let me just give you total freedom mm-hmm. here. I want to ask you, one, is there anything that I've missed, or what you mentioned other things that you've got wrong? Is there anything <laughs> that you'd like to share, big things that you've got wrong? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing mm. I have changed my mind on Mm. is that I used to be just like most economists more optimistic about technology right and why is that well I think rapid economic growth over the last two and a half centuries is one of the most phenomenal economic phenomenon one of the most phenomenal economic achievements of humanity and it is largely technological you know it's not just we've accumulated more labor or capital it's really about we've changed what we can do how we approach the production process new goods new technologies new techniques and you look at developed versus developing countries or emerging countries again technology is a critical part of it it's just the misuse or lack of use of technology which is institutional of course but is is the bedrock of the difference between rich and poor nations so with that perspective you know i viewed like many economists who whose work have influenced me and who worked on this topic as well that technological change was broadly a force for good and I think in doing that just like many other economists I did not place enough emphasis on a some of the negative things that came out in that process so industrialization is an enormous achievement but let's not forget all of the child labor, all of the poverty, all of the humongously costly living conditions and working conditions that British workers were subjected to in the late 18th century, early 19th century. So that's, I think, is a very important part of it. And second, and this is really a big faux pas on my part, because, you know, over the last 25 years, I've been working on directed technological change, but I didn't make the leap that 
directed technological change more broadly construed applied to these sets of things would say actually it's the direction of technology that's really important. Right. Mm -hmm. So those things have been sort of brewing in my head over the last 10 years and finding the right way. And so the automation surveillance, I think, have become the sort of the nexus around which I have sort of revised my ideas that, yes, technology has the power to be the to be the driver of economic growth and reduct reducer of poverty. But if we use it for surveillance, that's where data comes in. So that's why privacy, yes, etc. Yes, I think is, yeah. is you should we shouldn't underestimate mm. the value of privacy. Mm. And if we use it for automation, empowering bosses and managers and capital at the expense of workers, that's not going to be the type of technological change that's going to lift everybody out of poverty. So the direction of technological change matters. And then that's where then we bring it back. Well, the direction of technological change is that purely economical? No, it's political. It's also social. That's where the ideas also come in. Let me and let me say to the to listeners that this is what every single chapter in your forthcoming book does. It looks at how our politics, our culture, our institutions have shaped technology, have driven technology in across human history, and you give loads of brilliant examples. And let's also confirm that in a year's time, whenever that book comes out, we'll be talking about that, and that will be great fun. But yes, that's precisely what your book does, and I think that's a tremendous point: is that the direction of technological change that matters. It's not technological change per se, but in its direction, the way mm -hmm. that it's regulated, the way that its institutions, its vision, culture. Okay, I'm with you. Okay, final question: What don't you know? Almost everything I don't <laughs> what, know. What, what would you say the biggest things are that you don't know? Where, what are the biggest things about where you are agnostic? Agnostic, I don't. Agnostic, I don't know. That's the word I want to use. Okay. Ignorant. Ignorant, <laughs> I think, is a better word. Yeah, I think. You know. I am a believer in social science. And I want to see economics as part of social science. You know, economics is very special because you know it's very exciting. All of the interacting parts. It's also got a great methodology because of the evidence-based nature. But I think economics has to be viewed as part of social science. I think we've made some progress in terms of bringing politics into economics. And others have made tremendous progress in bringing some aspects of psychology into economics. But missing is social psychology and sociology. How do groups, communities, shape ideas, norms, interactions, how they organize people? You know, look at the US today. Yes. It looks like such a dysfunctional place. And I don't think you can understand that just as a political process. I believe a very large part of it is economic. It is inseparable from the fact that many people have experienced declines in their real earnings. Americans with high school degree or less than high school degree have men have seen 20, 30% declines in their real earnings over the last 35 years mm. or so, mm. over the last 40 years. But it's also sociological, how that economic shock has been perceived and how people have responded to it. And I don't think we understand it. 
And unless we understand that, we cannot see how we're going to turn the corner, how we're going to try to develop solutions to it. And, and I think that's both an exciting area for future research and also imperative for us to try to fix the politics in this country. And therefore, once you fix the politics, perhaps you can fix the economy. No, I'm, I'm totally with you. And so that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that, for example, it may not be that women internalize this idea of not wanting mm. to work. It may be the community policing effect. So what we're effectively saying is how how can that concern for what the community will think? How can these organizational questions, whether it's guilds mm. or trade unions or whatever, those internal... Is there anything that you think could be done to bring in the community and social psychology more into economics? Is there anything that listeners should th- be thinking about or what you'd encourage? No, I mean, I. No, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I think. You know, here's another thing. I got. Yes. I got wrong. Completely okay. wrong. Feel free. You know. Originally. I always thought of. Community. As. A stifling restriction on individuals. Mm. Like, of course, I understood that your community matters for favor exchange and other things, but it's always sort of also a policing mechanism for individuals. Uh-huh. But now I would say I think there is an element that communities also provide goals and other types of inspirations to individuals in a way that we don't understand. Like Mukir's work. Mukir's work at a more general level. People but I think celebrating local, yes. innovation yeah, and absolutely. gaining esteem, etc. Fantastic work, absolutely. But but I think more broadly, like community at the local level. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that is part of what we need to understand from a political point of view as well. So how can we build a broader notion of community. I think the thing that came to my mind mm-hmm. sort of when I read Tony Judd's Ill Fares the Land, and you know, it's a brilliant book, very short, written on his deathbed, and very uh, clear-eyed in terms of how he identified the problems that were brought to the surface after the financial crisis in the West. And I think what he argued there, which I first, I negatively reacted, but then sort of grew on me, is that this was partly the problem of the left, that it became too individualized. And that the left sort of was the one who destroyed community. And and he, some, somebody from, like, from the left, actually, I think it's an ex-Marxist, uh, sort of was seeing the, the sort of the the, uh, the collapse of communitarianism as the institutional fault. I'm not sure whether I would go that far, but I think he was dancing around a set of issues that are very difficult to get to with our economic models, but I think the sociology of it may actually have broader economic implications that we recognize today. Yeah, and I would just draw a gender parallel, if okay. I may. So, for example, uh, a lot of economists think that when women ga- uh, gain employment, they gain bargaining power. And to me, that misunderstands the importance of friendships and solidarity, that women gaining mm. friendships outside the home, which is a form of... Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's absolutely, that's a great, great example. I had not thought about that. That's a fantastic example, right? So those are all my questions, Doron. Okay, great. Thank you, Alice. Thank you so much. And... 
listeners, we will be back in a year's time with the fantastic book on the direction. Well, remind me of the title. In the name of progress. In the name of progress. You are in the name of progress, Theron. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening, everyone.